0: Hey, team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt on here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. <sighs> My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to get back and support the Eternal Optimist community, Go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist, It's Never Too Late, and you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. It is my sincere pleasure and honor To have met and now bring to you, Sir Darren Jacqueline, Darren, how are you today, my friend?
1: I'm grateful to be here. Thanks so much for allowing me to have the opportunity to make a difference in more people's lives.
0: Absolutely, man, I love the response. I feel this is gonna be a dynamite conversation. And, oh, first I'll ask you, how are you doing today?
1: You know, I feel very grateful, right? I feel grateful that uh, every day is a gift to me that I get a chance to wake up and open my eyes and realize that today is life. So I feel very privileged and very blessed to be able to wake up today.
0: Awesome, I love that answer. I'm looking for the, oh, I'm good, how are you? I'm looking for that so I can kind of tease it out and challenge that, and you have. Was there a time in your life when someone would ask you, and you didn't say, I'm grateful? So I'm curious, this is a great, great answer. I love the answer that you're grateful. Has it always been that way, or did it just start
1: recently? No, you know, it's interesting, I used to wake up and my alarm clock would go off, and I wasn't even on a bed. My feet had not even hit the floor yet, Matt, and I would say, what time can I go to bed tonight? And I was already pre-programming my mindset before I even got out of bed to what time I got to go to bed. And that's how I did it. So I was always getting through the day. And then one of my mentors, Jim Rowan, many years ago, he said, Darren, learn to get from the day, not through the day. And that was a defining moment for me in terms of my mindset, because a lot of people are just getting through the day. You know, oh, my gosh, today's hump day. It's Wednesday. Oh, fabulous Friday. Oh, I get the weekends off versus appreciating every day of their life during the waking hours of their day. And, uh, as you know, as we take our next breath, someone takes their last breath. So I've traveled the world a lot and been to a lot of third world countries. And when you see people who live in third world countries in mud huts and don't know where their next meal is coming from and don't have clean drinking water, don't have electricity, they have to walk a couple of miles to get dirty water every day. It gives you a different perspective on life of really counting your blessings with gratitude
0: every day. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Get from the day, not through the day, from Jim Rohn himself. Love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. So let's start with the hard-hitting question. The question I ask every guest now is, what is the hardest thing that you can share with us that you've had to endure or overcome? And you could take us back to childhood or right now, any timeline. But what's hard stuff that you've had to experience and overcome, Darren? You know, big thing was my mindset
1: and my values and my beliefs. You know, I grew up in a middle-income family in Canada, failed grade one of public school was misdiagnosed with a learning disability and a reading disability. It was determined by the school district that I would spend from grade one to grade 12 in public school in special education. So I never went to regular normal public school. I was put on a drug called Ritalin when I was a child for hyperactivity because I was very ambitious and energetic as a child. had a lot of energy, wanted to do things. And so I think a big thing was, is that growing up, not being good enough, not feeling smart enough, not feeling that I mattered, that I was valuable to humanity or to society or to my family. That was a big thing because when I went through school, I had very low self-confidence. I had no direction, no focus, no purpose. And I've always told no so many times, and you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not deserving enough, you'll never amount to much. I heard that many times. And I think that being in the school system environment was really negative for me. So when I was seven years old, I created my first business called Rent-A-Kid. I would go out and shovel snow, delivered newspapers, cut grass, paint fences, rake leaves. And by the time I was nine years old, man, I hired my two best friends, which today, I'm 51 years of age, we're still great friends to this day, 40 plus years later, because I'm a relational person, not a transactional person. And most people are transactional, not relational. We see that a lot with social media today, that people friend request you and they pitch you on some cryptocurrency dealer opportunity and you get real versus attracting that person. I think the mindset was the biggest thing. And then really realizing to come to terms that I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I'm worthy enough, and that I matter and I can make a difference in my life and in the world. Because for so many years, in my 20s and 30s, I struggled financially every month just to pay my bills. The first day of the month was always the most stressful because I'm thinking, man, am I going to make rent day today?
0: Yeah, complete struggle. Man, so many things to unpack here, Dara. I mean, the misdiagnosis, the not being good enough. This is like real stuff that uh, our listeners here are like, yeah, I think we've all at some level or another been told that we come from a place, if you came from a lower income, told you're not good enough, and you struggle financially in 20s and 30s at the first of the month. That's so relatable. That's so relatable. So what was the turning point? How did we get to that point where things started to shift? Great question. I was so
1: financially struggling at times. I was once homeless. I lived on the streets. I ate my next meal out of a back alley in a garbage dumpster behind a Greek restaurant. So I was dumpster diving for my next meal. You live in a first world country, living in Canada. So I know what it's like to be really upside down financially, collecting welfare. I had an R9 credit rating. So if you look at Equifax and TransUnion Credit in North America, their metric scoring system, I had the worst possible credit score, which is called an R9. People can Google it, do a bit of research on it, called an R9 credit score. And huh? I- yeah, I went from an R9, which was high risk credit score to becoming financially independent in my 40s. And so the turning point for me was 38 years of age, flat broke financially, behind on my promises, completely out of integrity. Nobody trusts me. Nobody wants to do business with me. And I looked at myself in the mirror that day and I just confronted myself that I just don't want to live my life this way anymore. It's not working for me. From 38 to 50, I was obsessed with studying wealth, financial wealth. It was not about the money. I just wanted to live life on my own terms. I wanted to go to bed when I'm tired. I wanted to wake up when I'm done sleeping. I wanted to go wherever I want, whenever I want, however with whoever I want. And I want to make a difference in the world. I don't want to just struggle every month financially to just pay the bills on time and to see if I've got enough money when I go to the grocery store or the gas station to know my credit card or my debit card is not going to decline because I went through that many times in my experiences through life. i just wanted to, when I got a knock on the door and someone says, hey, can you support this nonprofit organization or this community organization? I'm like, and you know, I've already contributed. No, I haven't. I'm broke. You know what I mean? I just want to say, yeah, I want to contribute. I want to give. And I want to make a difference and stuff. And I want to make an impact. And so that was a big thing for me was at 38 years of age. And then just three years ago, I was overweight and out of breath. And during COVID-19, I really gained more weight. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't eating healthy. And I realized one day I went on a hike in Vancouver, Canada, And it was a 45-minute hike, and it took me two hours and 40 minutes just to get to the top. This is a hike that kids could do in elementary school in a physical education class. It wasn't a hard hike. It was a beginner hike. And when I got back to my vehicle, I sat in my car. I said, I don't want to live my life this way anymore. I'm tired of treating my body like a woodshed, not like a temple. I'm driving around in this meat suit. And so I have these defining moments in my life when it was financial, it was relationship, it was myself in terms of my self-confidence, my self-worth, that I'm good enough and smart enough. And so I made these decisions in life that enough is enough. I've got to make a decision.
0: So if I can trace this, what I think I understand is that at 38, you made a commitment or a decision to start to study wealth and you intentionally worked on yourself and on wealth. And over this period of time, up until three years ago, so maybe it's... 10 years, you're working on this. 10 years, you're studying, you're learning, you're growing. And then three years ago during COVID, you found yourself, use your terms, wearing the meat suit. And I think we can all relate to that at some point. Yes. So you made another commitment. Yes. Another commitment. And now here we are. Have you always had this energy? Because like, it's easy for me to fall in love with you uh, right away because I love your energy. I just love what you're bringing. Did you have that three years ago? Did you have that 13 years ago? Like,
1: I've had it throughout my life because I really love people. I really love people. I deeply love people. I'm a sensitive guy that really cares about people. And I know what it's like when I'm out in public, when I see people who are overcoming adversities and challenges and failures and setbacks. I know it's like to go through school and be invisible, be not seen, be not understood. I know it's like to be the misfit, to be the, labeled the class clown. I know it's like to be labeled as you're never going to amount to much, you're never going to go any far. You're just a dreamer. I didn't go to college, didn't go to university. You know, I know it's like to go out and apply for a job and struggle because I didn't have much on my job resume. I didn't have the communication skills and the people skills that people had. I didn't understand when people said they go to this alumni or or sorority. I don't know what that means. I didn't grow up in that kind of stuff. So I had to learn a whole different vocabulary. I I know what it's like when when people have big goals and dreams and everybody laughs at them and says it's never going to amount to much, never going to do anything. I know what it's like to be upside down financially and not know where my next meal is going to come from and not know how I'm going to pay my bills at the end of the month and going to get my car repossessed, or going to get evicted. So I've had those struggles, I've had my credit card shut off, I've had my car repossessed. And I've been behind in my taxes and, and bills and collections and creditors and all that stuff. And I was so financially broke, Matt, one time, that I actually went to declare personal bankruptcy. And I couldn't pay the bankruptcy fees to the person that was doing the bankruptcy process. I couldn't pay their professional service fees. So I couldn't file personal bankruptcy. So I I was so broke, I couldn't afford to go bankrupt. I've been there, I've slept on people's couches. I wrote an international book here just two years ago during COVID, where I talked about for many years, I traveled the world as one of the top corporate trainers in the world, 50 countries on four continents. But there's many times where actually at night when I flew into that city and arrived at that Holiday Inn or that Ramada hotel or that Travelodge hotel, that I couldn't afford to sleep in the hotel room. I actually slept in the seminar room, in the room where they stored the flip charts and the overhead projectors back in the 1990s, early 2000s. And then I'd get up the next morning and I would go and clean my face off in the public washroom or restroom of that hotel, put on my high school graduation suit that I wore and traveled the world with for 15 years. I wore the same high school graduation suit that I graduated in 1991 as a D student because I didn't have the money. But every day I had a different shirt or different tie on, and that was different for me. So I know what it's like to have adversities and challenges and struggles and setbacks when I'm interacting and having conversations with different people.
0: Wow. So let me get this straight. You are an expert. You're doing corporate training. You're teaching. And you're an expert at this. Doesn't necessarily mean that you are great on practicing You know some of these things personally, and I think a lot of us can relate to that, be great at something and maybe not as focused on this over here. So the thing I love to dive into is that you've always been relational. You've always had the energy, but until you decided at 38 to commit to this new path, it was the hardest game. And then you made the commitment. And I want to kind of get into the book because I love the title of it. I've not read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading it until I become. Talk to us about becoming and how you made that transition and started to become this amazing person we're talking to now. Well, you know, just unpack some things from the book
1: until I become, we talk about commitments. So I wasn't committed to my commitments. And a lot of times here's something to look at as an awareness for a lot of people is that I invite people to consider looking at, are you committed to what you're committed to? Because when things get hard, things get challenging, that's when we want to bail. And so the key thing is always do complete work and always commit to your commitments. So one of the things that I learned in my 20s and my 30s is in my early days, I had no integrity. And that was really hard for me to look at and understand what integrity was. So what I discovered was also, too, was that then I had selective integrity. And then I realized in my life that showing up early is on time and on time is late. So I'm impeccable with being on time in my life. Impeccable. If you notice, this called I Show Up Early because to me, early is on time. Because behavior never lies. And in the book, Until I Become, I talk about that behavior never lies. Never assume that you aren't being observed. We're always being watched and we're always being observed because behavior never lies. And so people are watching our feet. They're not watching our lips. And they're watching because what I really learned from myself, Matt, through a lot of adversities and struggles and challenges is that my words create my world. If I could really take on understanding that my words that come out of my mouth shape and create my world. And that people are watching and observing me all the time. of my words come out of my mouth, create my world. My word is my integrity. My word is my bond. My word is what I say. So, for example, you and I could interact, you know, 20 times. And 19 out of the 20 times, I show up early and on time. And that one time, that one time that I show up for some unreason. maybe my internet doesn't work or something happens, I show up late. Will you forgive me? Because my consistency and my track record or my past performance is now only 20 times I've shown up early and on time. When people want to earn more money or get a promotion or they want to date somebody or they want to travel or they're like, oh my gosh, why aren't things working for my life? Go back and retrace your steps to where you gave your word or where you out of integrity. Because all broken promises lead out of integrity. When you just retrace your steps and you look at in a relationship, in getting fired from a job, in things not working in business relationships or partners, to financial, to your health, it all, you retrace your steps, it all goes back to broken promises. So I've spent a lot of inner child work on myself, with myself, and also hiring coaches and mentors and joining mastermind groups and trauma coaches, looking at my life and unpacking it all, saying, where did I have broken promises? Where did I not fall through on my word? And it's uncomfortable work in the beginning. It's really hard. It's challenging. It's challenging. But it's also very rewarding because a lot of weight comes off my shoulders and I can walk with my head up and be out in public and have a smile on my face and have high vibrational energy because I've released a lot of that dark energy and a lot of that weight off my body from just being authentic and vulnerable and dealing with the real stuff of what's really going on versus masking it and hiding it. And I did that for many years. I masked things and I hide them. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. I'm all right. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I don't oh, have how i going to... Am I going to get evicted at the end of this month, or I'm going to have to get my car repossessed? That's going through the back mind because every human being, Matt, is solving a problem. Understand this: we're either coming from a problem right now in our lives, or in a problem, or we're heading towards a problem. But every human being on the planet is solving for something in their lives. What I learned as an entrepreneur is: you want to make more money, solve people's problems, find a way to provide value, be in service to people.
0: What are some of the problems that just having this conversation on a podcast, what problems might we be contributing to solving right now? What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, the biggest thing to look at is, because people are geographically all over the world listening to this or watching this, is look at right now when you watch the news media. So when people watch like CNN or whatever news channel they watch or they watch this internet channel, I don't look at it and get depressed or feel triggered and feel negative. I look at it as a way of being a service to people and humanity. I'll give you an example. I had a chance a number of years ago to meet one of the wealthiest men in the world, multi-billionaire. Flew into Vancouver, Canada on a Gulfstream 5, a $50 million private jet. Met him at the Fairmont Hotel at Vancouver International Airport. And so I did my homework with my team, and I did a lot of research on this guy, and I went there. And When I walked in to this private room that he rented at the Fairmont Hotel at the airport, he was going through all these newspapers from all over North America. I looked at him. I said, what are you doing? Because I was curious. I wanted to learn what he was doing. And he said to me, he says, you know, Darren, I'm not a religious man. But he said, I'm reading all these newspapers at all these highlights in the newspapers, because whatever I'm seeing as a trend here today is God's to do is to go out and serve humanity and serve the masses of the population. So I'm looking at opportunity zones to go out and serve people by solving problems. So when we watch the news meeting, we see all these things or you're in the, the coffee shop or you're in the lunchroom with your coworkers, and you hear them gossip and complain turn those prices into opportunity zones and look at ways to solve those problems and monetize them by turning them into cash so you can create an income or multiple streams of income for that. So the key thing is, it's just transforming, you know, one person's junk is another person's treasure, they say, right? So the key thing is, is that we don't have money problems in life. We only have thinking problems in life. There is no lack of money on this planet. There's an overflowing financial abundance. There's people who have not enough money There's people who have lots of money. I have a lot of friends of mine who have a lot of money. They don't know what to do with it. They have multiple revenue streams coming in from various different asset classes of different businesses, of monthly recurring revenue and dividends and cash flow. And then they got to look at places to allocate that money. So the key thing is when somebody's raising money for a startup business or they got an invention or an opportunity or an idea, where does money hang out? Like, I'll give you an example. Years ago, when I was really struggling financially, I was staying at the cheapest hotels I could. Like the Motel 6s, the Holiday Inns, the Ramadas. Like if they had a special one, I was there. They had kind breakfast. And so one day I was traveling and I was at this hotel. And what happened was I had no money. And I formed this high net worth investor. And he says to me, he says, uh, I want you to come to my office and meet me in my office. Well, there was no Uber back then. I couldn't afford the taxi cab. I couldn't afford the public transit. So I thought, I'm just going to meet him at the hotel. And at this Holiday Inn, they had a free continental breakfast. So I called the guy on the telephone. I said, "Listen, I'm going to buy you breakfast." I lied to the guy. I wasn't buying him breakfast. It was for Russian hotel guests only. So the guy said, "Fine, I'll come. I'll fight restaurant. I'll drive to your location and I'll meet you." He came into the Holiday Inn hotel. I was pitching him for fifty thousand U.S. dollars for a company I was involved with. I wanted to write a check for fifty thousand U.S. dollars. Guy comes to the hotel. He walks in, and it says in the breakfast room, "For restaurant hotel guests only." Like big signs all around me. And I bring him in and ask him whatever he wants for breakfast here at the hall. the to sit down. So he sits down with me and I knew I had a very set period of time with him. So I lunged in and just threw up all over him with pitching and selling him my investment idea. him to write check $50,000. He looks at me for about like 90 seconds, Matt. And he looks at me and goes, are you done talking? Because I want you to shut up or I'm going to walk out the door. And he put his fist on the table and he said, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. Because I see my younger self in you, Darren Jacqueline. He goes, you're financially broke right now, and you're hustling and struggling to whatever you can because you're desperate. And I was. I was desperate. I was flat broke. And he goes to me, he said, listen, I'm going to give you a piece of advice because I feel that it's worth it for me to, to give you this advice. So I'm going to turn this into a coaching session with you now versus an investment opportunity because I'm not going to write you a check for $50,000. That's off the table. He said, Darren, stop pitching and selling and start Educating and informing. And he goes, if you get this, it will change your bank account, it will change your life. Stop pitching and selling people and start educating and informing people. Listen and ask questions and educate, and inform versus pitch and sell. When you pitch and sell, you repel people. When you educate and inform, you attract people. I'm a high net worth investor and you're pitching and selling me and I wanna run out the door right now and my money's running out with me. And I really got that moment that I was pitching and selling all my life and I was transactional, not relational. And when I stopped pitching and selling and slowed down and took a breath and started to educate and inform people and started to build relationship equity so people got to know me and like me and trust me and build that relationship, everything changed in my life. That is great wisdom. Wow. Why did I give me such a gift versus running out the door and saying, screw you, I'm never going to see you again.
0: Amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. What an amazing story. Is this around that time of 38? Because that feels like a game-changing, defining moment to hear that wisdom. On a side note, have you had the opportunity, if that person is still living, to reach back out and thank them or share with them what that meant to you?
1: you know, good, question. good question. The guy lives in Toronto, Canada, and I actually reached out to him a few years later. He did remember me, and I actually gave him an update of where I am at in my life, and he was surprised. He says, you know, I saw it in you that there may be a glimpse of opportunity that you may listen to me. And this is a coachable or teachable moment for you. And I did. You know, I remember one time being in Vancouver, Canada, and I went to a big seminar. There's a few thousand people downtown Vancouver. And I got in the room and I'm like, oh, I was so uncomfortable. I'm like, man, I want to be up in the VIP section. I want to be up there. And I just didn't have the money. And I'm way at the back of the room, almost like using binoculars to see the stage, And I'm in the back and I'm just like, man, I I just want to be in the VIP section, man. I want to, and my blood's just boiling. And so I started taking notes from this gentleman who was on a panel from Toronto. When he was done, I actually actioned what he said because he was such a practical person. He was very specific with his information, not general. I went to the public library in Vernon, British Columbia, Canada, where I was living at the time. I was living in Vancouver. And I went there and I found his information in the public library because this is before the internet. And I actually took 10% of what I made over the next six months of money. And I actually sent him a check and mailed it to Toronto, Canada to his office address. And a few weeks after a person from his office called me up on my telephone and said, are you Darren Jaffin? Yes. We're just a little confused here at the, our office. We don't know what this check is for. We don't have you onboarded our database system. We don't have an invoice. We don't have an account for you. Who are you? What's this about? Because I sent them a check for a couple thousand dollars. I said, I didn't meet the guy. I said, you know, about six, eight months ago, nine months ago, this gentleman who founded your company was in Vancouver, Canada. He was speaking at this conference. I was way in the back. I was so impressed with what he shared. I took notes and I felt it was fair that when I earned, I wanted to pay him 10% of what I earned off of that. I've never met him before. She was, wow. She was, our founder is going to be really excited to hear this. So she set up a telephone call with me. A couple of weeks later, I called the guy. On the phone, I had a 15 minute call with him and he wanted to get to know who I was. So I shared with him who I was in the last couple of minutes. He says, tell me what you do professionally. So I said, I'm a corporate trainer. This is what I do. He goes, listen, I'll pay you $10,000 plus first class travel if you fly to Toronto, Canada and you do an executive retreat for some of my executive team. So here I am going into a seminar flat broke, what? right? My wow. on stages, who's got valuable information doing a knowledge treasure to share with me. I take notes in my journal go out and apply it, then go to the public library to find his business contact information, then send him 10% of what I earned, right, after tax income, net income, then I sent it to his office because I wanted to cut him in on one thing I got paid, if, you know, it was a win-win-win for everybody, it's a fair means of exchange, and then I got a discovery call with him, and ended up offering me $10,000 to go in and do corporate training. Awesome.
0: Wow, what a phenomenal story. That's how you got into corporate training.
1: Yeah, going into corporate training, really interesting. I actually used to be a telemarketer in Canada for McLean's Magazine. I was working for McLean's Magazine, and I was a telemarketer. I used to do 400 cold calls a day from 5 to 9, Monday to Friday, home intrusion hours. I would make 2,000 cold calls a week. After seven months, my boss came to meet Glenn, and he said, Dear, listen, this is a dead-end road. You can't go any further here. You're doing this thing called Toastmasters and Dale Carnegie training. This is back in the 1990s. He said, I suggest that you go and pursue a speaking career. And I'm like, man, I need the money. I need to I need to make these phone calls as a telemarketer so I can pay my bills every two weeks. I need the paycheck. I was an employee. He goes, you need to give your notice. You're not going anywhere here. We can't pay anymore. There's no growth here opportunity. And I was so scared when Glenn shared that with my boss. And so I gave my notice and I then left. I went to the phone marts and got telephone books. And I started to make 400 cold calls a day, 2,000 cold calls a week. Over five years, I made over 100,000 cold calls calling across the United States of America and Canada to businesses from A to Z in the telephone books. And I got a 98% rejection rate, only a 2% conversion rate. So I have 100,000 calls. In some months, Matt, I was three, four months behind on paying my bills Because when I was doing corporate training, I would go in and get these contracts, but they would be 30, 60, 90, 120 days sometimes before they would pay me, right? And so I had problems all the time. I was up and down financially all the time. So I learned a lot by overcoming a lot of rejection and adversity and just phoning people. And I didn't have the telephone scripts in the early days. I just talked to a mirror. And it was a way to build my self-confidence and my belief and my character in myself. And I had vision boards all around me in my one bedroom apartment. But that's how I started my corporate training business. And you know it's interesting, over a 25-year period, I ended up training over a million people in 50 countries on four continents, and I had 157 of the Fortune 500 companies as paying clients. But I had massive wow. amount of rejection in the early days. I had no credibility. Nobody believed me. I had no degrees, no education. Just I picked up the phone, and I dialed for dollars, and I hustled, and I made phone calls. Lots and lots of phone calls.
0: Yeah. Well, tell me about rejection then. What's your philosophy on rejection today? Uh, you're smiling already. <laughs> what does rejection mean to you now? You
1: know what's interesting? What I've learned? As human beings, all we are is a network of conversations. And everything that you and I really, really, really want in our lives is going to come from having conversations with strangers. It comes down to two things. What I've learned from Maslow's Richard is request and promises. Number one is what are your personal promises? In my life, I have my list of my top 10 personal promises every year. So I have over 7,000 written goals for my life, but I have my top 10 personal promises, personally, especially every year. So number one is, what is it you really, really, really want in your life? If you ask people, you go in any major city around the world, you go to Paris, France, you're in Singapore, you're in New York, you're in Los Angeles, wherever you go in the world, you ask people, what is it you really, really want in your life? The number one consistent answer is people say, I don't know. So the key thing is to, to find out what is it you really want? What are some of your goals and dreams and to write them down on paper? So that's your personal process. Step number one. Number two is making requests. So for every question you don't ask, the answer is always no. So practically, the key thing is what you want to do through a network of conversations, you start to want to start making requests to people. And whether it's asking for referrals, asking for introductions, asking for advice, asking to do business, you ask somebody, so you make a request. And when you make a request, people want to do one of three things. Step number one is they'll accept the request. Step number two is they'll decline the request, or step number three is they'll counter-offer the request. So they'll accept, decline, or counter-offer. So what I always do is people look at my lifestyle today, and they're like, oh my gosh, you've got all these things you've done in your life. Because I've made a lot and a lot of requests. So I'm always making requests. And I just allow people to accept, decline, or counter-offer. So like I'll give you an example. When I travel, like next week I'm traveling, I'll be in Florida next week. I'll be in Sarasota, Florida, I'll be in Tampa, Florida, USA. When I check into the Weston Hotel in Sarasota, Florida next week, when I arrive at the front desk, I will make a request or even a powerful request for a complimentary upgrade to one of the executive suites. Now, I'm staying at the hotel regardless. When I go to the restaurant, sometimes I'll make a request for a complimentary appetizer or a complimentary dessert. Not free dessert, but a complimentary dessert. If I rent a car, I'll ask for a complimentary upgrade for the rental car. Wherever I go, I'm just making requests. And allow them to powerfully accept, decline, or counteroffer. So I'm just constantly always making requests. And most people don't make requests because they want to look good and they don't want to look bad. And some people think they're above making requests. But you'd be amazed that when you allow other people to accept, decline, or counteroffer, let them powerfully choose one of those options, you'd be amazed at what happens. In business, I always ask for discounts. Hey, can I get 10% off? They'll accept, decline, or counteroffer. Can I get 15% off? Could you throw in this gift with this, or could you add this with this, or could we work up the terms of this? They'll accept a client or counter offer.
0: Dude, I uh, love everything you're saying. I feel like you're a brother from another mother. I've never framed it this way: it requests and promises, and I completely subscribe to it. I love it. How many times do people stay on the bench in life because of they're afraid of the other people's perception of them? You know, if someone has that, and it's a gripping fear for many. What might be your piece of advice to that person who just is afraid of that and it hurts them?
1: I've been the one that's been afraid. So what I do is make it write down 25. So you play a game. So the key thing is, is I do a three metric system. So here's what my promise is. So what I always do is I do a thing where I I look at my promise is 25 conversations this week. So my promise is 25 conversations. My actual is, then here's what your actual number of conversations And then my gap is, so my promise is 25 conversations. So let's just make this up for a moment. My promise this week is to have 25 conversations about growing and expanding my business. 25 conversations this week is, so somebody says to me, Darren, you know, I I don't have a job right now. Well, yes, you do. Your job is finding a job. Your job is finding a job. That's your job. Your job is finding a job. What do you commit to this week? Well, I I commit to having 25 conversations to share with somebody about my skills to, to get a new job. So 25. Then tomorrow, what's your actual? My actual is, well, I had three conversations. Okay. So your gap is what? 22. So promise, actual, gap. My promise is, my gap is, or my actual is, my gap is. And so every day I keep track because here's the thing. And this I talk about until I become, when I was knocking on doors and I was making lots of telephone calls, I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the intelligence. I didn't have the smarts. I didn't have the confidence. But here's what I discovered, and I'll share about this and until I become. Whatever you lack in skill, you make it up in numbers. Whatever you lack in skill, you make it up in numbers. So I'll give an example. When I was a young guy, I was very intimidated by girls. I was insecure. I was in special education. I wasn't a jock in school. I wasn't athletic. I was the kid who rode the short bus to school. So I didn't have anything going for me. I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. I grew up in a low-income family. I didn't have high self-confidence. So I didn't have a lot going for me. Other than a work ethic, cutting grass, shoveling sidewalk. So what I would do is I'd go up and I'd just every day I'd put 10 Canadian pennies in my left pocket, privately, secretly. And every time I'd say hello, good morning, good afternoon, how are you? Hello to a girl, I would then transfer that penny secretly from my left pocket to my right pocket. And when I used to go to networking events, because I was always very uncomfortable in networking events, because when people like, Well, where'd you go to school? Well, I went to special ed. Oh yeah, good to meet you. I got to go to the restaurant. It was kind of those things that people just blow up because I never had a university degree, college degree, or wasn't top of class or best of class. I was a D student in school, I Pass past public school, high school. So what I do is I go to networking events or trade shows or conferences or seminars. I used to put pennies in my left pocket. And my goal was I'm going to talk to 20 people. I'm going to have 20 conversations a day. And I would just secretly transfer a penny each time I had a conversation. And the goal at the end of the day was to have all the pennies in my right pocket. And that's what I would do. It's so a business card. For many years, like when I meet people at trade shows and conferences of business cards, if I wanted to follow up with you, it would go into my right pocket. Right pocket, right person to follow up with. If it went in my left pocket, I would discard it and recycle the business card and wouldn't talk to you again or see you again. And that's what I would do. And that's what I did.
0: Fantastic. I love the business card strategy. I had something very similar back in the day. So I love everything you're sharing. It's just so practical. It's applicable. We can get started with it today. Amazing stuff. If we move forward even more, I'd love to ask, what are you excited about now? The big vision and the goal is next for Sir Darren Jacklin.
1: Good question. So a few different things. One is E2E, Elevate to Educate, which is a hiking fundraiser. So I hiked for a cause. I love being in nature. I love being in the outdoors. And I really have deep, rich, authentic, inspiring conversations with people. You mentioned I offline if I golf. And I find when people golf, they put on their masks right? There's a lot of ego in golfing. And I find when people golf, you see their true, authentic, vulnerable self. So one of the things is when people go golf or people go out hiking with me and they're maybe out in the wilderness, people always ask, oh my gosh, is there wild animals out here? And I'll say, yeah, there is. in. People are like, oh my gosh, are we going to see a bear or a cougar or a lion or what we're going to see, right? And I'll say, listen, a mountain lion. And people say, what are we going to see? And I said, listen, the fear is real, but the threat is not. And I said, where else does that show up in your life? The fear is real. So right now you think there's a tremendous amount of fear of some wild animal coming out of the bush. So the fear is real. But there's no immediate danger or threat. There's no evidence right now in proximity to where we are that we see some wild animal going to threaten us or attack us. So the fear is real, but the threat is not. So there's that. Second thing is with E2E, Elevate to Educate, what I've done is I've released 43 pounds in weight from from just hiking all the time. And I used to be the slowest person in hiking. Now, I just did Mount Kilimanjaro here just a few weeks ago in Tanzania, East Africa, one of the top mountains in the world at 19,340 feet. So what I do is we bring people out hiking with us. They go to hikingfundraiser.com and they can register there. We do hikes across North America, but who is the cool thing? We bring people out to hike from all walks of life and they pay a small registration fee to come out hiking. They get a chance to network, collaborate, be in a great, inspiring, positive, energetic environment that enriches people's lives. But the fun thing about it is the money that we collect off sponsorship and off registration gets collected, goes to Link Foundation, which is my international foundation for global philanthropy, We've committed to building 100 schools over the next decades across Africa and $100 million. And they then get a chance through social media to see us build a new school called the Link Leadership Academy for some of the most impoverished children on the planet. So we've already built our first school from preschool to grade six. Now we're building the high school from grade seven to grade 12 in Liberia, West Africa, called Link Leadership Academy. We've got over 350 children, some of the most impoverished children on the planet today. It helps us to decrease human and child sex traffic and organ harvesting, because these children, a lot of them are targets around the world for organ harvesting. We help to alleviate them from poverty. We help to bring in clean drinking water, education, because they're the next generation. And if we look at India and Africa, they're emerging marketplaces. So people come out and join E2E, Elevate to Educate, hikingfundraiser.com. They hike for a cause, and they build a school. So every time people get a chance to come out and hike, that money gets allocated towards building a school for some of the most impoverished children on the planet.
0: How did you come to that conclusion and that passion to do that? Is this before 2020 when you're doing that? Is it during that time that you realized it's going to help me get healthy? It's going to inspire others and we get to serve the world. I mean, how did you come to this? Because this is amazing. And I've been the presence of someone who's serving the world in a great way, Darren. So how did you come to this conclusion? This is awesome.
1: I've had a chance to go to NASDAQ now in New York City three times, not once, not twice, but three times during the closing bell. Very few people statistically ever go there once. The first time I went was just an incredible experience. Like, wow, I'm in NASDAQ. I'm in New York City. I'm in Times Square ringing the closing bell at NASDAQ. Then I went back a second time. Now, this is cool. And the third time I went back to NASDAQ to bring the closing by I thought, well, what if I could bring people with me for an experience? Because, you know, 78% of the North American population live paycheck to paycheck, 78%. Did you know that one in four Americans or one in four Canadians do not have access to $500 liquid cash? That's the data. So I thought, well, what if I could take just the average person that just wants to do good, wants to help out their neighbors, wants to make a difference in their community, bring them out hiking for a cause, and they could feel that they get their fingerprints and be a part of something. So the last couple of years during COVID-19, during the lockdown, when I was out hiking for my own personal well-being and bringing people out to hike out nature, I thought, well, what if we could create an opportunity that could support Link Foundation for its global philanthropy projects? We could help to alleviate poverty and human and child sex trafficking and organ harvesting and decrease that. And we could help people just feel that they're a part of something to make a difference in humanity through a ripple of impact. And everybody wins. And I thought hiking is fun because you don't need a lot. Golfing, you have to take golf lessons or tennis or pickleball. You can do it in running shoes. You can do it in shoes. You don't have to have all the hiking gear. You know, you're in a safe environment with us. We're very well safety oriented. And it's just a way to be out in nature. And I find that when people are in nature and they hear the songbirds or they smell the trees and they're out there in the forest, people are their natural, authentic, curious self. Nature does something to people. It balances people, grounds people. And I just thought with Elevate to Educate, we're elevating people to educate people. And so it's a hiking fundraiser arm for Link Foundation, and it gives people a chance to make a difference. And so we have people now all across North America. We just did a hike here in Vancouver, Canada, just a few months ago. We had people flying, guy flew in from Thailand, people from the Bahamas, all over the United States of America, all over Canada, just for the weekend to be. And so now we've had people say, look, when you start building Elevate to Educate, E2 all across North America and eventually internationally, we want to go to all these different locations as family vacations and meet and network and collaborate with other like-minded people while supporting a great cause. And because Link Foundation is also an international foundation, there's tax benefits because people get tax receipts as well. So everybody wins. And so that's one of the things I'm really passionate about with that is just to make sure that we're making a difference in people's lives. Because here's the key thing, Matt. The secret to living is giving. The secret to living is giving. Your success or my success or our success is someone else's miracle. My success is someone else's miracle. It's someone else's miracle. So the more prosperity, the more abundance that you accumulate in your small business or your enterprise, your business or your career, the more you can be of service to other people. So my success now is sharing it with other people and creating a platform with Elevate to Educate to bring people out to hike for a cause. We had a young girl just a few months ago, one of our E2 events, she's 14 years old. She used her babysitting money at 14 to come out and pay for her registration to come out hiking, which was inspiring. She got a chance to be a part of Elevate to Educate. So now when she's 15, 16 years of age and she goes to apply for a job somewhere and they interview her and they say, so tell me a little bit about yourself as a 14 or 15 or 16 year old kid, you're a teenager. She can say, you know what, I volunteer with Link Foundation, Elevate to Educate. I go hike for a cause. Well, tell me more about that. The employers tell me about that. Well, I go and I use my babysitting money or my money. I take this. and I tie some of this money and that money then gets used to build some schools for some of the most impoverished children on the planet. Like, wouldn't you want to hire that in right there at that moment? Like, when can we fill out the
0: paperwork? Absolutely. Man, the secret to living is giving. One of my dear friends who I know listens to every episode of our show, his name's Tom. We talked about going to Africa recently. I'm curious if you could paint a picture for us of what it was like to summit and be at the top with the people you're hiking with. What was that experience like for you, Darren, when you were at the top of Kilimanjaro? It was the toughest, most
1: physically, mentally, spiritually thing I've ever done in my entire life. Complete exhaustion, even though I trained a year for it. The amount of dust that you inhale because they didn't have a dust mask, that, and then just the cold temperatures, you know, it was between minus 10 and minus 15 degrees Celsius below freezing because you're at high altitude, high elevation. Yeah, it's very cold. It was freezing winter conditions up there. Oh, yeah. There was snow at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, but it takes everything from you. And, you know, in Swahili, they say puli puli, which means slow, slow. On night five, when we are at base camp, there was 20 hikers in my group from around the world, all over. So 20 hikers, 10 guides. I think we had two medical people, a couple of doctors, and then 70 porters. So we had about 110 people in total in our group from all over the world. The cool thing about it was that you really learn. I learned a lot about myself with regards to how to go really slow and steady and consistent, step by step by step. Because when you're at high altitude at 19,000 feet, almost 6,000 meters, things go really, really, really slow. But then getting to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro and seeing the curvature of planet Earth and seeing the sunrise come up of an African sunrise is just breathtaking, National Geographic. And then to look at the other men and women that I trained and developed with over the last year to come up there and realize I'm standing on the rooftop of Africa was something just spectacular to be at the rooftop of Africa, the highest one of the highest summit peaks on planet earth which is just, just incredible and, and knowing that just if you would ask me a year and a half before that i would have said absolutely no way i'm not doing that i don't have the dna i'm not genetically wired that way i'm not an athletic person but what happened was i had a friend of mine that believed more in me than i believed in myself at the time he said darren you can do kilimanjaro and here let me introduce you to a guy so he introduced me to somebody who was hundred percent legally blind And this guy who's 100% legally blind climbed and summoned Mount Kilimanjaro and did Mount Everest base camp. And he said to me, he said, Darren, all excuses are 100% equal. So you have no excuse to go to Kilimanjaro.
0: Wow. Did not expect to hear that. What have I not asked you that I should ask you that we could share with the world? I've got a couple more questions, but I'm so inspired right now. I'm not sure what to ask. So what is it that I can ask you that I haven't yet?
1: I've got a a bonus opportunity or or an assignment for people if they want to take on a bonus opportunity. I'll ask you two questions and i like people to write the questions down and then go to work and action. it. I'm very practical I'm a very result-oriented person. So question number one is I want you to take a look at your life of where are you not requesting in your life. Just do an audit in your life. Just do an audit of your life and just look at your life where are you not requesting. Let's use relationships. Let's say for example someone's in a relationship and they haven't been on a date night for a number of months or a few years. So that's an indication that you're not making requests. Some people say, yeah, but I have young kids. I don't have the budget. Great. Do you have neighbors that you trust that You can let your kids be there for three or four hours or five hours. Do you have somebody in your community, somebody through your church, somebody of your place of work, somebody in your neighborhood that you can have volunteer look after your kids for a few hours? So question number one is where am I not requesting? So the key thing is take a look at your life of where you're not requesting of what's not working for you. So if your finances are not working for you, you're not making enough requests. If your relationship's not working for you, you're not making up requests. If you don't have the health and vitality and energy to work out or to exercise or walk around the block or do yoga, or Pilates, or pick a ball, whatever you're doing, hiking, then you're not making requests. You're not leveraging your time. So, question number one is: Where am I not requesting? And start to write it down on paper so you document it. So, question number one is: Where am I not requesting? Question number two is: Who do I become when I don't make requests? So, just take a look at yourself as a human being. Who do you become when you don't make requests? You're contracting versus expanding. You're coming from lack and scarcity rather than abundance and prosperity. You're being stingy. So when people are not making requests, they're playing a very small game in life. When you're making a lot of requests, you're playing a big game. Oprah Winfrey, I can list you all kinds of people's names around the world of men and women that they're playing big games and you know whether they're sports stars or celebrities or movie stars, they're in business, whatever it is. Behind the scenes, they're making a lot of requests to their teams of people. Now, when I started, I didn't have any money. So I started making requests to college universities to get interns and practicum students and high school students to volunteer for a semester to work with me as a work experience, work apprenticeship. And then I would evaluate them at the end of the semester. That's how I started. I used to co-share with real estate agents for an assistant or virtual or personal assistant. And I would co-share with a couple other people to reduce my costs when I started. So there's always ways to be resourceful and figure things out to create win-win opportunities for everybody. Because here's the thing as I talk about it until I become, in this book, I talk about most of your goals and dreams do not require your actions. Now people say, what, what does that mean? Most of my goals and dreams don't require my actions. So I have over 7,000 written goals, but most of my goals of those 7,000 goals, I'm not going to do all the actions. I'm not gonna do all the actions for those goals. It's about creating teams and teamwork. And now with AI, artificial intelligence, you watch in the next several months going forward, there's going to be technology with AI where it will actually work on your dreams while you're sleeping. I've seen some test stuff that uh, people are raising money for right now. I've had a chance. To, I can't talk about it because of non-disclosure agreements. but I've seen some stuff right now being tested in artificial intelligence where you can actually implement your goals into a uh, software And it'll actually go to work on some of your goals to achieve and manifest your goals while you're sleeping. So most of your goals and dreams don't require your actions. So people say, well, yeah, you know, Darren, I I love to set new year's resolutions or set goals or have a vision board, but I just don't have enough time in a day. Well, the key thing is the reason you don't have time is because you're not making requests and you're not getting virtual assistants or automating or creating systems and processes. You're the cog in the wheel.
0: You're speaking the truth, man. You're speaking the truth. I remember the day that I finally got my first PAS and started to use AI and started to, to delegate and all this this series of level ups that have happened when I started to make requests. To use your frame, and I I love it, and I know our listeners love it too. Where do we get the book? How do we get it? Can you hold it up one more time so we can see it? Where do we get this amazing book? Until I become,
1: you can go to Amazon.com or Amazon.ca, or you can go to Until you Become Until I Become.com. And uh, we have a lot of people using this book now if they have different businesses or organizations or sales team. We have people using this as a book of the month. And there's many financial services companies, real estate companies, mortgage broker companies, network marketing companies, sales organizations, all over the world that are using this. Uh, we have people in colleges, universities using this in their classrooms. It's less than 100 pages, but it's a very practical book. It's a no-fluff book. It's a great book that I get frequent messages all the time around the world. People saying how much this book has made a difference in their lives because I was the guy that would go to a seminar and I would see somebody up on stage that's successful and they would talk about their trip or a vehicle or a watch or some big thing. And I'm like, okay, that's good for you. But I'm just trying to figure out how to pay my rent on time. And so I'd leave the seminar or the workshop depressed because there was such a gap. I'd put the person on a pedestal and I'd put myself in the pit. I would minimize myself saying, I just need to know how to go from here to here. I can't say from here to here. That's just too much of a gap for me. I need you to confine the gap to very small. So what the book, Until I Become, this book really takes you a step-by-step process of what I did. And it's a phenomenal roadmap to what you want to do. And that's what people were missing. And so I'm the great case study because I'm the guy that you know was in special ed and I'm the guy labeled mostly not to ever succeed, never to amount to much. I was never the guy who was never going to go to NASDAQ and ring the closing bell. I was the guy who was never going to achieve financial independence. I was none of this stuff. All the cards were stacked against me. And I turned things around. Who ever thought that I would ever get knighted by a royal family? I mean, one of the very few people on the planet ever get knighted. Who ever think I'd ever climb one of the highest mountains in the world when I'm out of shape and out of breath? All these things, just mind boggling. So the book has just been a real gift to the planet to really serve a lot of people. And I'm grateful for the people who've bought 500 copies and 50 copies, they've given to service organizations and colleges and universities and in their communities. People have purchased the books for, for their graduating classmates of kids. So this is a roadmap when they leave high school or college university to grow up in the world. And and this is a book, when Jen and I and the team created this book, I said, I want this to book be in people's personal family libraries for decades. I want this book to be around for generations. This book is timeless. I want this book to be around. I want it to be a book that I read. Oh, I read that book. It's like everybody else's book. No, this book was created because of a lot of adversities and failures and challenges and setbacks and things that were not working for me in my life. And I had to figure out how to make things work because I was upside down. The first thing is, as you'll see in the beginning of the book, is I read a story to my younger self and I'm very vulnerable and I'm very exposed there. It moves a lot of people when people feel the authenticity and vulnerability of me speaking to the younger Darren Jacqueline. Very, very powerful.
0: And this is amazing. Where else can we find you out there and connect with you on social media or anywhere, Darren? How do we find you and learn from you more?
1: Yeah, you can Google me. I'm on all the major social media channels. would be great to have you come out hiking sometime around North America International on E2 Elevate Educate because you get to spend some one-on-one quality time with me and be in my inner circle and have a seat at the table and be around some really like-minded, fun, cool people from all walks of life, from all different age groups. And it's really inspiring. I love people, I love making a difference in people's lives. So I love to enrich people's lives. So a lot of times people come out hiking with me now and they bring their kids. So it becomes just an incredible environment for the kids just to soak up and learn and be a sponge. And I love to make a difference in people's lives and just realize that you know our success is someone else's miracle. You just never know. I was always that person that was always hungry for more information. And I just wanted to move forward and make a difference in my own life. You know, when the students ready, the teachers appear. And I was grateful that I had two big people that show up in my life. One was Sue Urquhart, who I mentioned in Until I Become the Book. You know, I was in a Toastmasters meeting uh, because I did multiple suicide attempts to end my life. That's how I ended up in Toastmasters and Dale Carnegie. I tried to commit suicide multiple times because I didn't believe in myself and I felt that I was in so much pain and so much trauma I just because it so much trauma from my childhood that I didn't want to live anymore. And so I ended up joining Toastmasters and Dale Carnegie because I was in a lot of pain, a lot of trauma. And I had a lady one day when I was doing one of my icebreaker speeches in Toastmasters, I was so scared my first icebreaking speech at Toastmasters that I actually went and pulled the firearm of the hotel. I talk about it more in the book. I give more of the specific story. But I was so scared, I pulled the firearm in the hotel to delay me public speaking in my Toastmasters meeting because I was so out of my comfort zone. Sue Urquhart, that lady believed more in me than I believed in myself. She was a stranger to me because I didn't really know her. And she believed more. And so I like to look at myself now to pay it forward and pass it on. Is that I want to be that person that believes more in people than people believe in themselves. And people, when they read the book until it becomes that's what they say, they say, man, you believe in me so much. And it speaks to me while I'm reading your book. I know you dare, Jack. I'm, it's like, you're talking to me because I'm authentic and I'm vulnerable because there's no fluff in the book. I'm sharing with you Things on how I overcome my adversities, my failures, my challenges, my setbacks, my disappointments, my fears, my doubts, my worries, and how I turn things around with a roadmap that got me through everything. And that's what I share with people. It's very powerful.
0: Amazing. Until I com on Amazon. Until I become.com, you can get it. And I'll throw it out there. I'm so inspired right now. I didn't plan to. I just feel inspired right now uh, to give. So any, I'll say the first 100 listeners that message me, I'll like, send you a copy of this. This is an amazing opportunity. I love to hear everything you shared today, Dara. This has been amazing. This has been amazing. My
1: pleasure.
0: I'm uh, to be a service. I never thought my story would ever matter. Growing up, I thought, who would ever listen to my story? I'm just
1: a write-off. I'm just a throwaway kid. I'm just a not a good enough guy.
0: And now you're impacting the world in amazing ways, my friend. This has been a real treat. And we're down to the final minutes here. I'd love to uh, take you the lightning round, ding, 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 with a couple of questions to just to hit you with machine gun style. When you hear the name Eternal Optimist podcast, what does Eternal Optimist, what might that mean to you, Darren?
1: Somebody's eternally grateful means it's never ending. It's like when you look out there, you're top of a mountain hiking, you can just see for miles and miles and miles and miles, it's a clear blue sky. You're Eternal Optimist, there's no clouds, there's no... There's nothing in the way. It's just a clear blue sky, or you can see an ocean just for miles and miles and miles. It's just unlimited visibility.
0: Mm, Amazing. Thank you. Aside from the book, Until I Become, which, of course, amazing book. We're going to get that. What is a book or two that have had a major impact or influence in your life?
1: Yeah, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. was a life-changing book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Another good book was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. came out in 1937. Jim Rowan had a phenomenal impact on my life. Jim Rowan, if you know who Jim Rowan was. Oh,
0: yes. Yes. I love everything you just said there. And the last question would be, if there is a song or if there's a type of music that really just lifts you, gives you energy or inspires you, what might that be for you, Darren?
1: So Whitney Houston wrote a song, One Moment in Time. It was a very powerful song. I listen to a lot. Give me one moment in time because life is all about life experiences, moments in time. And that song just really resonates with me. I also love I'm a big 80s fan, so I love 80s music. But something I listen to when I do a lot of work all the time is if I have the headphones on, is that I go to YouTube, I listen to Def Leppard, the Hysteria uh, live concert. And I listen to the whole concert
0: on YouTube. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that. It's the first tape I ever bought and uh, still one of my favorites today, man. That's like paradise day to get you going. (laughs) Awesome awesome well it's been a real treat and an honor and a privilege to learn with you to be with you to learn from you so thank you so much we love you we appreciate you sir darren Jacqueline. it's been a real treat thank you sir
1: Uh thank you very much